Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. And let's read what God has to say to us this morning as he speaks to us. He says this in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual a host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He says in verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith and with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, this morning, focus our attention solely upon you. Let us look at this armor as Paul's given it to us. And let us understand its meaning in our life. And especially that sword that will be highlighted this morning. Father, I ask this of you that you make very little of me today and very much of yourself. That we may hear your still small voice in this place. And let it be for your honor and glory alone. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul's been going through the armor, as you know. And he's been basing the armor that we're to put on on the soldier's armor, the Roman soldier's armor that's right there around him. You know, we've already been through that belt of of truthfulness. In other words, putting on the truthfulness uh, around our waist, girding up those those corners of our mind with the truth of God. He's, He's told us that we should put on the breastplate of practical righteousness, that righteousness that's lived out through Jesus Christ that comes out in holiness in our life. He's told us that we should shod our shoes with the gospel of peace. And, and that's the gospel that, that you're on God's side, that God's on your side, that, that he's in this battle with you. He then said that we should go from having those things on and then the next pieces he said we should take up. He said we should take up that, that shield of faith. And what is our faith? That God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. We're to stand behind that shield when the darts are fired at us. And then last week we looked at that helmet of salvation. That helmet of salvation that had three parts. That we have past justification from the penalty of sin. We have present sanctification from the the power of sin. And we're going to have the future glorification from the presence of sin. And that's the helmet that we put on. All of these pieces of armor have one thing in common. They're defensive. All of those pieces of armor are defensive. They're used for our protection. Paul now is going to step into another piece of armor that is both defensive and offensive as we take it up. Paul sees there on the soldier probably standing next to him in a a sheath on his side this sword. And Paul takes a look at this sword and And thinks about what this sword could be used for. And I think he came up with three thoughts in his mind about this sword. Three things that are are special about this sword that can be applied to the sword that he's told us to pick up. Which is the sword of the Spirit. 
The very first thing that I think he noticed, as he did with each piece of the armor, was the design of this sword. The word that Paul uses here is not referring to that three-foot-long sword we talked about last week that the rider on the horse would be using is the reason you needed to put on that helmet. He's not talking about this great big long sword that's just swung in all directions. The actual uh, word that he used there, the Greek word that he used, was makaira, which the makaira is actually, uh, could be better translated, dagger. Quite honestly, it's a short, normally uh, 12, 18, 24 inches long at most, but generally 12 to 18 inches long. And and it's this knife or this dagger that they wore continuously uh, with them. It went everywhere they went. It's really a, a weapon that's used close in this hand to hand combat. If you remember when we talked about the breastplate. That was one of the things the breastplate would deflect. When we talked about the shield, it was used for those arrows that were shot in. When we talked about that helmet, it was because of that big long sword. But, but when we talked about that breastplate, it was because of those daggers, those things that would be in close. I find it interesting. That word makaira is the exact same word that was used about the soldiers who came to the garden one night to pick up this man named Jesus. It said whenever they came, they came equipped with these makaira, these swords, these daggers. The sword the soldiers carried would have been just of superb construction. You could only imagine. It would have, it would have been made of the strongest of metals. It would have had a two-edged razor-sharp edge on both sides of that sword, and it would, have, it would have come to a sharp point that would have been able to penetrate the armor of, of the other soldiers. And I'm sure as, as Paul looked at this soldier and looked at this sword, he could see the lethalness of this weapon that Hung on the side. He also would notice, I believe, on that sword that between the handle and, and the blade would have been a hilt, would have been this place that would have stopped their hand from sliding from the handle into the, the blade that they carried themselves. It was designed to be a very lethal weapon. It was designed to be something that they could use in close to attack. It was designed for one purpose. It was to inflict injury upon, upon their enemy, to kill their enemy. That was the purpose it was designed for. But it also served a secondary purpose. That same sword in their hand could be used to deflect the blows of the enemy that was attacking them also. So, this begs a question for me. <laughs> what is the design of our sword? What design goes into the sword that Paul says that, that we are to pick up? What, how is our sword put together? First, we have to look at what Paul says is our sword, which he says our sword is actually the Bible. It's actually God's word. There in verse 17, it says that you're to take up the sword of the Spirit. And he goes on to explain to us, which is the word of God. He said this last piece of the armor that we're to pick up, that's both a defensive item and an offensive item, is the Bible that you hold in your hand this morning. It's the Word of God. We're to take that up. And he says that we're to, to pick that up and go forth with it. But he says that there is this, this sword that's the Word of God that we're to put in our hand. That sword that we're to use for both our defensive and our offense is what God has given us, His Word. It is not to be our own intellect. See, that's where we go south sometimes. We like to take pieces of the word, put it together in the order we would like it to go, and use that to go into battle, and then we can't understand why we got whipped. See, what he says is we're to take the word in its entirety, in its context, the way it was meant when God gave it, and we're to use it in the battle. 
if we were to say, well, I like the sword he gave me, but I'd much rather have one that I did at home. Or maybe you run over to punk shop and he's built you a knife and they're fine knives. But I don't think they will stand up to the knife that God gives you. And see, when we use our own intellect, what we're really saying is we would like to be our own God. When we take the word of God and set it on a shelf and say, you know, I think I know better about this situation. What we're really saying is, God, we know more than you do. (laughs) See, the Bible is to be the standard for both our personal lives and the life of the body of this church. It is to be the one standard for all that we do. The decisions we make need to, have to be, must be based on the Bible to be effective in the war that we are in with Satan and the demons right now. See, second, what is the design of our sword? It's designed by God. Its maker is God. I'm going to rattle off some scriptures for you. I'm not going to ask you to turn to these. I know you tell me all the time. I have people stop and say, Pastor, you read them so fast we can't find them. So I suggest you get your pen and your bulletin out and you jot a couple of these down. Because I'm going to fly through them because we're not going to be finished on time this morning. The first thing that tells me that God is the maker is 2 Timothy 3.16. It's where Paul tells about the authority. When he's writing to Timothy, he says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All. You know what the Greek word for all is? All. Everything. The front, the back, the maps, the concordance, the title page in the front, as far as I'm concerned, were given by inspiration of God. There's not a word that was put in that God didn't say, take your pen and write this. See, we have to start with the creator, the designer, and the designer is the same one that designed you, and it's God. When he said, write, they wrote. The second place I know that makes him the creator, the Bible tells us that he is the creator, is 2 Peter, uh, the very first chapter, the 21st, uh, 20 and 21st verse. Peter writes this, Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And why do we know that? Verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, much of this Bible you hold in your hand came from the spoken word of the holy men of God. Who gave the men? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Paul, John. Who gave them the words to speak? God through the work of the Holy Spirit. See, Scripture is not a figment of man's imagination. It's not some great story that's been written down and pieces tied together. It's, there is no way I could not conceive of an individual who would have the ability to sit down and write such a comprehensive story of all of time as you hold in your hand the Bible. There is not a man smart enough. There is not a group of men. Was it written by a group of men? Absolutely. But the author was one man. God. You see, Scripture is the Word of God given to men through the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? All through the Bible, cover to cover, is mentioned about God giving men His Word. I'm just going to throw a couple out at you this morning. Genesis 15, both verse 1 and verse 4, the words are used that say this, The word of the Lord came 
to Abraham. In 1 Samuel 15, 10, it says, Then the word of the Lord came unto Samuel. In Isaiah 38, verse 4, it says, Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah. Over 50 times in the book of Ezekiel alone, the phrase, The word of the Lord came unto me is used. So, when you read what Abraham said, when you read what Samuel said, when you read what Isaiah said and wrote down, when you read what Ezekiel said, where did it come from? God. You may say, well, that's an Old Testament thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I may say that. But over 360 times in the New Testament, the phrase, the word of God, that phrase alone, and there are several others that could be tied to it, but that phrase, the Word of God, is used over 360 times in the New Testament. 360 times. I'll give you two examples. Luke 3, 2 says, The Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. What was the Word of God that came to John in the wilderness? <laughs> Repent. You remember the message. John the Baptist hanging out there. Also, we see the apostles. Pretty important, fellas, when you think about Church history, when you think about the Bible, when you think about the spread of the gospel, some of the highest on the list would be that group of apostles. Wouldn't you agree with me? Maybe not. Maybe this will help you. Acts 6-2 says this. The apostles said this when they were gathered together and it was brought to them that somebody needed to feed the widows and take care of them. You remember what they said? In Acts 6-2 it said, it is not desirable that we should leave, listen to this, the word of God and serve tables. Do you realize the Bible you hold in your hand when you read the New Testament, you are reading for the majority the writings of the apostles? And when the apostles said that they held in their hand the thing that they were ordained to do and read and study, what did they call it? The Word of God. None of them said, I hold in my hand Peter's writings, or John's writings, or Paul's writings, or any other writings. They said, what we are called to do is pray and study the Word of God. You see, the apostles recognized the fact that what would make a difference in the world they lived in, as well as our world, was for the Word of God to be the central focus of all that they did. So we not only see that the maker of the word is God, but we also see that this word is infallible and inerrant. This is where the entire sermon goes unpolitically correct. <laughs> this is where, if there are any liberals in the room, I will be called outside in just a few minutes to be talked to. But here's what I believe. I believe the Bible in its entirety is incapable of being wrong or making a mistake. Why do I believe that? <laughs> I wrote down, if the perfect holy God is the author, then it goes to reason that all of his words are perfect and holy, therefore are without mistake and cannot be incorrect. If you believe the Bible is not telling the truth, then you believe God is a liar. And if you believe God is a liar, you're not going to a place called heaven because there is not one. You may not even go to a place called hell because there is not one. You see, you can't pick the pieces you want to believe. 
if you believe God is who he says he is and you're holding your hand that word which he breathed out, then you must, you must, church, believe that it is infallible and inerrant from cover to cover. Are there places I don't like? Yes. You know why there's places I don't like? Because it jumps straddle of my neck. That's why. It doesn't change the fact that they're correct. <laughs> Are there places I dearly love? Yes. And just because I love them doesn't make them more correct than any other place. But see, the Bible is inerrant and infallible. How do we know that? Psalms 19 verses 7 through 8 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing our hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, the psalmist, when he thought about Scripture and all of that chapter 19 of Psalms, talks about God and the Scripture and gives reference to just how perfect and holy and, and pure that he is. But when the psalmist thought about those words, even as he wrote the words that you now read, all he could think about was just the greatness of God and the fact that all that God did and all that God said and all that God made was perfect. So not only is this maker God, not only is it infallible and inerrant, here's another non-PC item. The Bible is complete. I have an issue with some of my brothers who stand behind the pulpit once in a while. When they start their messages off with a word that says, I learned something today that... I've never heard anybody say before, I saw something today. God gave me a word I've never heard anybody have. What have I told you to do if I ever do that in the pulpit? Leave. Leave. Because when God finished the book and closed it, it was done. There's to be nothing added. There's to be nothing taken away. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, it says, Every word of God is pure. Uh, he is a shield to those who, who put their trust in Him. Do not, do not add to His word, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. For me to stand in the pulpit and say, God's told me something that's not in your Bible makes me a liar. And there's a rebuke from God. God is really serious about the completeness of his word. And there being nothing added and nothing subtracted. You know the verse. You know the one that everybody thinks about when I say there is problems when you take things out of the word. There's problems when you insert. And it comes in the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorite. There are several. But Revelation, the 22nd chapter, verses 18 and 19, John writes, under the inspiration of God, remember, he's been set aside. He's been taken to see things that we just could it just blows my mind the things he wrote about he is just he's just been blessed by god with all these things and as he wraps up this book as he wraps up this book of the revelation of god he writes this for i testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to these things god will add to him the plagues that are written in the book would you like to add anything to the book of Revelation this morning? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but then he goes on to say, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, this is the one that's really scary to me. It says, God shall take away his part 
from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Do you think God's serious about the completeness of his word? He is real serious about the completeness of his word. Not only is it complete, it's also sufficient for life. This word is sufficient for life. There is to be no other authority in our life other than God's word. The word is to be that which we build our lives on. How do I know that? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 is a great chapter, but verses 16 and 17 talk about the word specifically when it says this. All scripture is given of God. He could have put a period right there and I'd have been good. He could have put an exclamation point right there and I'd have been good. But he goes on to say, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you catch what he said? All that we need to live the Christian life is found in the word of God. Doctrine, which is truth on how to live. Uh, reproof, which is correction when we get it horribly wrong. The correction, the rest- restoration of our lives to where it should be. So we've got this doctrine that tells us how to live. We've got this reproof that corrects us when we fall. The correction then should restore our lives back to where it should be. But then it also says that it's good for instruction which is to be trained, to grow, to be more like Christ in our godly behavior. What is the outcome of the word in your life used properly? That we may be complete in Christ Jesus. How would you like to know when God sees you, he sees you as complete, just as his word is complete. What he's saying is this complete word is sufficient for all that is in your life. And then lastly, the word for us is effective. It's an effective word. God's word, when used the way God wants it used, will accomplish all of God's purposes. Isaiah Isaiah 55, 11 says this, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When you're in the battle with Satan and you pull from your heart the word of God and you send it forth into the battle, you know what I know about that word? It will accomplish exactly what God intended it to accomplish. He says, when it leaves my mouth and it goes out, it never, never comes back to me having failed. It does not come back void. It accomplishes that which God desires. God's word never fails. So first, we've seen the design of the sword. The fact that that sword is made by God, that it's complete, that it's in the air, and it's, it's, it has no infallibility about it, that it's sufficient for life, that it's effective in our life. So we've seen the design, but now let's look at the defense of that sword. Because there is a one great example in the Bible that tells me that the Bible is a defensive weapon. See, one of the ways the Roman soldiers would use those swords, those small swords, is when they got in close and another person was trying to, to stab them, they would take that sword and they would, I think the word is perlay, maybe. I pictured a guy with a mask. and the, Nobody else pictures that? It's just me. But they knocked to the side those 
swords that are being jabbed at them as they get in close and they're fighting in battle and they I'm sure they've got their small shield and they're they're trying to work their way through the crowd and they're they're using that that sword to knock to the side those those other weapons that are coming at them and and when the enemy would try to stick a sword into them they would knock it to the side and as their hand went out they were able to come back underneath their arm and stab them with their sword and so they use this as a defensive weapon also and And one of the ways we use God's word every day of our life is to push aside the attack of Satan in our life. Most of us this morning, before we left home or on the way to church or once we got to church, had already seen the dagger of Satan thrust in our direction. We had already seen the attempt to stick us with that dagger of his own. Why? Because he didn't want you to be in this place in the right frame of mind to hear the sword of the Spirit this morning. All of us have already bumped into that challenge. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4 real fast. I will ask you to turn to me at Matthew chapter 4. We used this earlier as we talked about some of the armor. As we talked about the fiery darts that were fired at Jesus himself. Because you know the story of, of Matthew uh, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the story of the temptation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. You remember it tells us there in verse 1 that he was led out into the wilderness. He was not, by the way, led out into the wilderness by the devil. Hopefully your Bible has a capital S on the word spirit there. It says that he was led out by the spirit Anytime you see a capital letter in the word is spirit, you're talking about the Holy Spirit. So it was led out by this Holy Spirit. You also notice in verse 2 of that, yes, verse 2, it says that he had been fasting for some 40 days. 40 days. This is the one place that I kind of wonder if he was ever a Baptist. You ever known a Baptist to fast for 40 days? To be sure, within 40 days, there's going to be eating meat at the church if you're Baptist. But it did say that he fasted. That was a side note, no charge for that one. But he said he fasted for 40 days. So physically, in his body, he was, he was weak in his physical body from this fasting. And it tells us in verse 3 that Satan seizes opportunity. It says, now when the tempter came to him, the tempter there is Satan. Satan comes for his attack. And notice the first attack there in verse 3 that he throws at him. It's a, it says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Command that they become bread. What was this attack all about? Did it have anything to do with Jesus being hungry? Did it have anything really to do with Jesus at all in one sense? What Satan was attacking was God. And what he was attacking through the temptation of Jesus Christ in the very first temptation was the faithfulness of God. Because who led Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness? God. He had been fasting for 40 days, which we would assume, because of the instruction given of him to go to the desert, would have been under the direction of God. And here Satan comes in and says, If you're hungry, there's a stone. Turn it into bread. The question being, was Jesus capable of turning the stone into bread? Absolutely. We'll see a few chapters over that he takes a little boy's sack lunch and feeds the entire stadium full of people that are there. If he could do that, he obviously could turn a stone into bread. So the question was not his ability to do it. 
The question was God's sufficiency in Jesus' situation. See, what Satan was trying to get Jesus to say was, God's not providing, I must provide for myself. That was what he was trying to do. Look how Jesus answers him there in the fourth verse. This actually comes, by the way, from somewhere else in Scripture. You'll notice that because it says in verse 4, but he answered and said, it is written. That's indication that he pulled these words from somewhere else. That somewhere else happens to be Deuteronomy 8.3. And it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When Satan showed up, Jesus in his weakness, and he tried to tempt him to say, God's not sufficient, I must supply for myself. What did Jesus say? My God is able, and my God's in charge. He reaches back into Scripture and says, let me just tell you what God said about this little situation. He said, I'm not to worry about my physical body. I don't live on bread alone. God's got that handled. He says that I am to live off of every word that comes out of my Father's mouth. What a neat way to parlay the sword of Satan as it attacks him. But then we go on to verse 6. You'll see Satan's second attack. This attack is really to test God's truthfulness in all essence. He goes on to say this. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. So he's got him up on top of this temple. He says, if you're the Son of God, just bail on off. Just bail on off. He says, you want to quote scripture to me, Jesus? Let me help you out. He says, for it is written, Satan reaches back in Scripture and pulls out a little something and says, this is also written, Jesus. He shall give his angels charge over you. And just so you know it's in there more than one place, it says, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He says, Jesus, Jesus, God's promised. There's nothing you can do that he doesn't have covered. The angels are right here. There's not a thing. There's not a thing that you can do. See, the question was not in the ability of the angels to do what they were called to do. The question that Satan was really throwing at the feet of Jesus was, could he trust God? Could he trust God in all those things going on in his life? Notice how Jesus answers. He says, it is written, so we know he reached back into Scripture. This time, Deuteronomy 6.16, I believe, is where he reached back. He says this, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Do you know what's in Deuteronomy, by the way? There's a group of people that are exiled, that are in this desert, that are hanging out, that continually question God and God provides, and they question God and God provides. Remember manna? Remember a stone that pours water? Remember things that happen? And back in this Deuteronomy chapter, a lot of these questions have already arisen with those folks. Jesus reaches back there and says, you know what? I don't need to tempt God. God's God. He tells me not to tempt. You notice this third attack very quickly in, in uh there in the ninth verse. His third attack goes like this. He says, and he said to him, being Satan, to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. <laughs> he had taken him, he had taken him up on the mountain, overlooking the city, able to see things, and he could see for miles in the crystal 
clear air there and he was looking and Satan said, just look, just look out. Wouldn't you just love to have it all? All of this I will give you. All these things. The Bible tells us Satan had the power to do just what he said. For he was the prince of the power of the air. He's in charge. He was the one running all these things. He had the ability, I guess in essence, to give that to Jesus. But Jesus knew one thing about his God. He had promised him. He had told him that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One day all of that was going to be his. In fact, even this day he owned it. Satan was just allowed to run it. Jesus already knew that God alone also, that God alone was the only one that was worthy of worship. Those two things in his mind made Jesus say this in the 10th verse, Away with you, Satan. Not only did he prolay the first two blows, but now he takes and knocks the dagger completely out of Satan's hand. He says, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you will serve. Jesus reaches back again into two places in Deuteronomy and quotes these scriptures right in the face of this attack. He pulls out the sword of the Spirit, prolays the attack, and knocks the dagger from the hand of Satan. And says, there's only one God. There's only one God that I will worship. There's only one God that I will serve. When attacked with Satan's sword of sinful temptation, Jesus drew the sword of the Spirit to defend himself against the attack. Church, we need to be doing the exact same thing. When attacks come our way, we don't need to run to a counselor to figure out what's going on. We don't need to look into our past to see how we were treated. We don't need to worry about the fact that someone's got it better than us or it's our right to have something or we should have this by the law. It doesn't matter about any of those things. What matters is what does God say about it in his word. When Satan attacks, we should reach into the word and pull out the answer. We don't need to look to a legislator or an employer or someone in our family to fix our problem. We have a father who is willing to fix our problem and has already given us the answer. We need to reach in and pull out that sword. So not only have we seen the design of the sword, not only have we seen the defense that the sword can be used for, but there's one other thing we need to look at very quickly. And that's the duty of the one who bears the sword. You see, each of us, when we joined the army of God, we were put on duty. (laughs) We were put on the front lines. We were put in place as part of the army. And just like the Roman soldier was expected to wield his sword for the advancement of the kingdom of Rome, the country of Rome, God expects us to wield our sword for the advancement of his kingdom. God expects us to wield our sword for the advancement of his kingdom. What does that mean? It means there's not a paperweight or a dust holder or something that the pastor explains to you on Sunday. It is to be used daily in the advancement of the kingdom. It's not only our protection, but it's also our proclamation of who our God is. If somebody wants to know why you love Jesus, what will be your answer? Your answer should come from the word of God because he first loved me. But they want to know why you put your dependence on God. You want to say, because my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When, you, when someone asks, when you're having the problems in your life, you still say there's a God. 
And you look at it and say, God has made me a promise that he will never leave me or forsake me. And it doesn't matter if I'm on a mountaintop or I'm in a valley, he is still God. (laughs) You see, this word, this word that we have in our hands that we use daily is a piercing sword. Hebrews 4 Verses 12 through 13 say this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Did you get that? There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know what makes the word so effective? It has the ability to separate sin and righteousness in our life. It has the ability to split our life open and lay before the eyes of a holy God what the real intent of our heart is and none of it none of it can be hidden one of my favorite authors John MacArthur wrote this statement the proclamation of God's word brings God's judgment to bear on the lives of those who hear the proclamation of God's word brings God's judgment to bear on the lives of those who hear by the separation of truth and lies, by the revealing of the intent of the heart. God's word lived out and spoken into the lives of those who are around us, convicts them of their sin, and shows them the grace of a wonderful Savior. Not only is it piercing, but this word is powerful. Powerful. The most powerful thing that I can think of in my mind is Jesus Christ saying to the dead man, to Lazarus, come forth. Or saying, why do you weep over her for she's just resting? Honey, get up. The most powerful thing I can think of is Jesus raising a person who has been dead three days from the dead and then walking out of the tomb. That is some kind of powerful. God's word is so powerful that it can raise us the sinner from an eternal death to walk out of that tomb to an eternal life with him. When I think about my life, that to me is more powerful than the raising of a man that's been physically dead for three days. For I know who I was. I know where I was headed. I know the life that I lived. And for the word of God to penetrate that heart and raise it from death eternal into life eternal, that is powerful. What do I mean? Very quickly, if you ever want to know how to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, write these verses down. Write these verses down. These are the ones that ring true in my mind when I'm speaking to a person about the power of God's word and what it can do in their life. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God there, that phrase is better translated a word of God. 
A word of God. And what is the word of God? Here's the plan of salvation for you very quickly. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and all of us have come short of the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. It says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin in your life is a thing called eternal death. It says for the wages of sin is death. But one of my favorite words in the entire Bible because that's where God shows up. It says but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says that we've all sinned and the wages of that sin is a place called hell, eternal death. But God stepped in and gave us this person called Jesus Christ that is our life for all of eternity. How do I know that? Because he told us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. Should have this eternal life and will never perish. See, he says that we all, we all deserve to perish. We all deserve to perish because we sin and our, our sin leads us to death. But God stepped in and God said, no, 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 I have another plan. And let me show you that plan. It's Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ for the payment of the penalty of your sin. And you confess that. You believe that. You have eternal life. How do I know that? Because it says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, he says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe in our heart, that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. He says, because it's with the heart the one believes unto righteousness, it's with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Do you know where I found all of those scriptures that tell me I'm no longer dead, but I am alive? It was in my sword. It was in my word. It was in what God gave me. It was what God uttered to men of old who wrote that story, who wrote that truth of God. And I've taken it into my heart and I've confessed that with my mouth and it's changed my life for all of eternity. The question before us this morning is not, is God's word capable of defending us from Satan? Or is it even capable of advancing the kingdom? I'm proof of both of those things. I am proof that there is a defense to Satan called the word. I am proof that the kingdom has been advanced in my heart because of that word. So then the question must be this this morning. Are you standing with the sword in your hand in battle? Or are you depending completely on your own intellect? I know we're out of time, but I can't help but tell you this one story. I can't help but tell you this one story because I think it's very pertinent in the day that we happen to be standing in. As I was, as I was thinking this week about the Word and the importance of the Word and how a lot of folks, even Christians, do not believe that the Bible is alive and active today. Do not put their whole heart in the Bible and do not think about the importance of the Bible in our world. But let me tell you this story. 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, there was something very important in the life of our church as well as our denomination it's something called Reformation Day. Most of you guys don't know what that is. You've never been taught that. I apologize, and we will work on that. 
But up until that time, there was one church really that was known, and that was the Catholic Church. And there was this particular monk that was a part of this Catholic Church, and his name was Martin Luther. They have no idea what year he was born because his mom couldn't remember, but she didn't know the day that he was born. And he was born the day before St. Martin Celebration Day. That's how he got his name, because he was born one day, he was christened in the church the next, and they named him St. Martin. He grew up in a relatively... uh, well-off home. There's a lot of stories that say he was beaten and grew up in poverty, and that's not the truth. His mom and or his dad owned a business, and he grew up fairly well and was sent off to learn the languages of the day and really was being prepped to become a lawyer. One day, one day he was traveling, and this thunderstorm came along, and it so scared him because, keep in mind, Ford hadn't been made at this time 500 years ago. Chevrolet was just being designed, and they haven't changed the style all the way to today. Um, none of those things were, were made. They were horse or foot. They were walking. And it was a storm that arose. And in his fear of the storm, he said, God, if you'll get me through this, I'll become a monk. That's how he went from studying to be a lawyer to sneaking into a monastery so his dad wouldn't find out to become a monk. He studied very diligently. He was a brilliant man. He studied very diligently the things of the Catholic Church, the things that they did. Yet one day... In his learnedness, he got a hold of something called the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. Now, you, you may find it a little strange, but in that day and time, the Bible was only for the leaders of the church. Commoners didn't have one. You, as members of the church at that day and time, would have to take my word for it because I would hold the only copy. Matter of fact, they even came up with a Bible called the Chained Bible because it was chained to the pulpit. <laughs> It's kind of weird that you have to change the Bible to the bull, but that's not necessary in his time, I digress. But the Bible was to be only interpreted and instructed and given to the commoners by the man in the pulpit, yet Martin Luther read. And he read a statement in Romans that said, And the just shall live by faith. And it struck him. By faith? What is faith? I've been told I must pay indulgences to get a better place. I must give things to the priest for him to pray for me. I must do these things, these active outward things, to make my position in heaven secure. And he thought to himself, faith? What is faith? And he started reading the word. And this Tuesday, the 31st, 500 years ago, he walked to the door of the church of Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed upon the door of that church 95 things he wanted to discuss with the leaders of the church. It's called his 95 Thesis all surrounding this thing called indulgences. Indulgences that were to pay for a better position, basically in heaven, so to speak. Not really as far as the Catholic Church was concerned. but And he nailed this to the door of the church. What came out of that? What came out of that was a Reformation. Reformation, out of that came this thing called Protestantism, which in case you didn't know, I hate to break the news to you, you are part of. Baptist is a Protestant denomination. If you break that word down, it's Protestant. It was the protest of the church at that time. Why is that important in our life today? Because not long after that, a man named William Tyndall came along. William Tyndall said, you know what? For the commoner to know what the Bible says, it must be written in the commoner's language. You know what he devoted his life to? Translation. You ever heard of the Tyndale translation of the Bible? There's still the William Tyndale Printing Association or publishers that print much of the literature that you hold in your hand today. He decided the commoner would have to be able to read it 
To be able to read it, he'd have to have it in his language. Devoted his entire life to that. And when I say devoted his entire life, I mean devoted his entire life because they killed him for it. Killed him for it. Not long after all this, another little device came along called a printing press. Up until that time, there was no printed material, so to speak. And this printing press came along. What do you think they decided they would print with the printing press? The Bible. The Bible that just a few years before was only held by the hands of the man behind the pulpit, but Tyndall decided it should be translated into the commoner's language, and they said there's no better thing that we could do with the printing press than to print these if we're going to give them to the commoners. You know what the Bible was used for for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the secular world? English book, even though it wasn't in English, whatever, Latin book. This was how they taught people to read was the Bible. You know why? Because one man read it and believed it. He read it and said, it says the just shall live by faith. Nailed something to the door that ultimately took him to a thing called the Diet of the Worms, which is he stood before the German secular leaders and the church leaders in this, this council with a stack of books that he had written, one of which said the priest is the Antichrist, by the way. He really thought a lot of the church, didn't he? And they looked at him and said, will you renounce those or will you die? He said, could I have a minute to think about it? They said, we'll give you 24 hours. He comes back the next day and he made his famous statement. Unless you can prove to me with the Bible or common reasoning that I'm wrong, I will stand with what I wrote. That actually allowed him to leave, which was unusual. But that is what started the reformation of the church and this Protestant denomination that you're a part of. One man reading the sword of the Spirit and knowing that that would make the difference in the world he was in. Yet I would dare say in your home there are multiple copies of this. Probably more than you even know about. Probably some you've been given over the ages. When's the last time you were willing to stand up with that in your hand and say, I know what will make a difference in this world. Let me draw from my sheath the sword and let me use it in the battle I'm in, even if it causes me death. Like the missionary in India who was taken to the post because of his faith to be stripped of his skin alive. As they pulled the skin from his body, you know what he said? Today you will pull from me this body of sinful flesh, but I will now be covered in a glorified body. How could he do that at the face of being stripped of his body? Because he believed what that said. Church, it does no good to put on the other pieces of armor and to leave the one item that will spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout all the world laying on our shelf. We need to pick it up. Let it be the roadmap for our life and let the world see our Jesus through it. I challenge you this morning. Will you take up your sword? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.